This is where they are building the largest nuclear fusion reactor in the world. Yeah, a friend of mine told me I had to check out this pool. America on Main Street and at the dinner table is talking about infrastructure when 20 years ago they didn't even know what that meant. Today, those towers are an astounding display of wealth, prestige, and engineering. First. It's impacting everyday Americans. I am against the train the way it's being done right now. New York City housing is a scam. It is a scam, 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 scam. The Shard in central London is being officially opened today and at 310 metres tall, it's Europe's newest and tallest skyscraper. Hello, I'm Fred Mills. And this is the world's best construction podcast by the B1M. Hello, 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 and welcome to the World's Best Construction Podcast. Today's episode is sponsored by Bluebeam, and in a very exciting change of proceedings, I am not joined by either Luke Bly or Liam Marsh, uh, but we've brought in senior content producer, Mr. Ian Parkin. How you doing, mate? Hello. I am doing good. Thank you for having me on. I've been dreaming of this moment. Have you? It's been... <laughs> it's, you better dreams. You know what? <laughs> Um, I actually had a look because I came on, I came on this podcast just after we released the video on the Feeman Belt last year. So it's it's literally it's almost a year to the day that I was last on this podcast. Oh, happy anniversary, mate! You are you are a friend <laughs> of the podcast now. <laughs> Thank you very much, friend of the podcast, Mr. Ian Parkin. I say happy friend. anniversary because you actually joined the B One M on Valentine's Day, didn't you? It starts where the love affair started. Yeah. That's where, that's where it all began. That's where it all began. That's where it uh, all began. And you're calling us today from uh, Peckham in South London, which is the, where the ambient noise may be coming from. Yep. So if you hear any um, sirens, uh, any uh, s- screams, any uh, just you know the kind of stuff that you would not normally hear on a on a podcast. Uh, that's that's Peckham. <laughs> yeah. hey, we've had screams on sirens on this podcast before. Don't you worry. Oh, okay, people good, selling overpriced, good. people selling overpriced coffee. Maybe, maybe the sound gentrification you might hear in the Ooh, background as well. How much? How much was the coffee to deserve a scream? <laughs> I got a coffee in London the other day that was over four pounds. Oh no! Over four on. pounds for a cappuccino. No, it was that right? And it's, that's just a normal, like a basic coffee, no like added sprinkles or, or any of that stuff. Just a standard no, coffee. Another opportunity, just no. a standard cappuccino. I'm a pretty standard still- average guy. Oh God! I saw the the average price of a pint in London it now is about six pounds fifty. Can you can you believe that? Shocking! It's expensive. It's expensive to get drunk these days, at least on your own money. It is. You can tag along with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, guys, if you're wondering where on earth uh, Luke Bly and Liam Marsh are, if you're mourning them, if you're missing them, don't worry, we haven't sacked them just yet, although that is very much on the cards for me. Uh, Liam has got married. Uh, we send our big fat congratulations to Liam. Uh, he's now on honeymoon, I believe, in Bali. So he's having a lovely time, a long way from this podcast. Uh, and Luke is unfortunately unwell again. So we're sending Luke our best wishes. But ultimately, this has worked out quite well because we've got them both of the podcasts. The, the baggage that was weighing me down has gone. And we've got the fantastic Mr. Ian Parkin in. So it's good no, to no, have no. you here, mate. The, the shackles are off. <laughs> I, would, I mean, I'd, I'd say, you know, Luke's got a good excuse. Um, you know, illness, fair enough. Um, Liam, I'm surprised that he chose his, his honeymoon over this. 
I'm, you know? I'm genuinely surprised the way he's been talking about this wedding just trying to want to like you know get it over with just get it behind him you'd think he'd have put the podcast <laughs> ahead of the ahead of the honeymoon but so. there we go there we go anyway guys we've got an awesome show come out for you today first off we're talking about the race to turn las vegas into an f1 track a video that came out on the b1m yesterday also in the news we are talking about the winner of construction story of the year 2023 which has just been announced the world's thinnest hotel opening in indonesia and a new show court approved in wimbledon south london as ever, whole thing is going to be peppered with lots of banter, discussion, and generally higher caliber insight around architecture and construction, and some of your comments from the week. Let's do it. Let's get cracking. Let's go. First of this week, we are talking about the race to turn Las Vegas into an F1 track, a video that came out on the B1M yesterday. Now, this weekend is going to see Las Vegas host the Formula One Grand Prix. What we've done is taken a much closer look at the incredibly complex construction project that's enabled the city to host that race. It really is an extraordinary feat they've pulled off to be able to host the F1 uh, in the middle of busy and congested Las Vegas. It's a story that Ian actually researched and wrote, so I'm very pleased to have him here with me now, helping take a, a deeper dive into it. Are you excited for the F1 this weekend, mate? Uh, I tell you what, I had so much fun um, making this film. It's, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not an avid F1 fan. Um, you know, I don't, come Sunday, um, I'm not, I don't regularly watch it, but there is just something really cool about F1. You know, you don't have to be into cars or any of that kind of stuff to appreciate somebody, you know, flying around a track at 300 kilometers an hour. You know what absolutely. I mean? I, yeah, absolutely. I think it's just like always with F1. It's like the the setting, the adrenaline, the prestige. Like you say, mm. you don't have to be into your cars, but mm. it is a very cool thing to watch. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, what I like as well is that, like, so this is the latest street race that they're they're doing. Uh, I think there's been um, a real effort in the last ten or fifteen years to put more street races on on the circuit, um, and they just there's there's just so much more glamour about them. You know, obviously you've got Monaco as the oldest one, and that's just oh, imagine being in Monaco for the Grand Prix. Come on, what's better than that? Yeah. Well, Las Vegas. You, um, you say imagine being in Monaco for the Grand Prix. You're not familiar with my bank balance uh, or the kind of people that I <laughs> the kind of people that I rub shoulders with. But I don't get many invites out to Monaco to watch the no, Grand my, Prix. My inbox is looking pretty empty as well. I'll, I'll be honest. Yeah. The Laurent Perrier tent have not extended me an invitation yet. So, hmm. I I mean I could go. With, I'm sure they look for cleaners, you know, to sweep up afterwards. <laughs> Definitely. Take, take out all the empty champagne bottles, you know. Well, hey, now we've got rid of uh, Luke and Liam, and this podcast is finally going to take off like in a big way. Maybe mm. I'll get my invite after this. Maybe this is the episode that changes it all. After we get into fifth gear, yeah. Oh, nice. Love the go. puns. Now, guys, you may suddenly. think that. Sorry. <laughs> I started already. It didn't take long. <laughs> Now, guys, you may think that uh, Las Vegas and Formula One is a match made in heaven, right? It's the world's most exciting motorsport hosted in what is pretty much accepted as the entertainment capital of the world. But it's not actually the first time this has happened. There was actually the ill-fated Caesars Palace Grand Prix, which some of our older listeners might remember, uh, with a lack of support from City Hall and fears over the safety of having race cars on local roads. The 1981 Grand Prix was held in the car park of Caesars Palace Hotel, which is a lovely little fact. 
Uh, it was held during the day, and the brutal heat and famously boring track meant that only <laughs> the race only lasted two years before being scrapped entirely from the F1 calendar. So, mm-hmm. would you have gone to that one, Ian? Um, no, I mean, I'll be honest, it looked rubbish. It, <laughs> it, it looked, I, was, I hadn't heard about it before I researched this film, and it did look really, really disappointing. Yeah. <laughs> Gordy, I can imagine. I'm, I'm hoping there was like a big Roman theme, you know, there's like a Colosseum bill and statues. Well, no, there was, not, there was none of that. It, it was literally just a dash around a car park. I mean, you know, they could have done it at the back of Sainsbury's. I, <laughs> I was going to say that there's a there's a Grand Prix near me in the local Tesco. So that happens Is on a Saturday night sometimes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> People drag racing around the car. Well, and boy races. Yeah, yeah. Lights under your car. Yeah, Imagine. Ford Fiestas. You'd be pleased to know, guys, they've gone bigger now. This is not the uh, the ill-fated Caesars Palace Grand Prix of 1981. They have gone much, much bigger. There is now a 17-corner circuit that was the result of 31 different design considerations, uh, and the whole route has been intended to show off the best of the city, the best the city has to offer, the very best of Las Vegas. Uh, so the track starts off with a series of high-speed turns before a very high-speed stretch right down towards the MSG Sphere, which is that very big light-up ball you've seen all over your social media. Uh, it then curves back round to the iconic Las Vegas Strip, where the cars are going to race at top speed past nearly two kilometres of the world's most iconic casinos and famous landmarks, including the Eiffel Tower, uh, Venice, and uh, <laughs> what's the other one they have? The New York Skyline. Yes, all sorts of things you can only see on one day in Vegas. There's then a series of left turns, and drivers are going to head back to the starting line. This is a pretty cool route. It's, what's good about Vegas is you don't have to go far to see all the good stuff, especially not in a sports car. You can get around it pretty mm. quickly, right? Mm. Yeah, and I think also they timed it perfectly with the opening of the of the MSG Sphere. You know, that yeah. opened, how long ago was it? A few weeks, a month or so? Yeah, September, um, I think. Yeah, so they've got the they've got all of the classic stuff that everybody thinks of when they close their eyes and, and think of Vegas. And then they've got all the, the brand new things as well. You know, the big shiny sphere. It's going to be, it's going to be mm. great. Yeah, the sphere makes it a very kind of uh, well-rounded route, I think. There we go. Lovely. Oh, you're welcome to everyone cringing listening in you're welcome uh no it should be good i think this is uh i say las vegas isn't a big place uh my then girlfriend now wife made me actually no she was then my wife uh made me walk down the entire length of las vegas strip once in 35 degrees to go and get a set of trainers that she wanted to buy on our last day in las vegas um i think we got there they didn't didn't have a size or something so on that day the strip felt like a long strip but uh, how, I'm sure yeah. in F1 car, it's quicker. How long is it? To, Too long, to, mate. To go the full length. I don't know, because each casino is massive. Like, you're walking by each casino for a, you know, at least half a mile. You know, things like the Bellagio, the Venetian yeah. are, they're enormous great things. Yeah. So, I think it depends yeah. where you draw the line, because there's obviously the Las Vegas sign at the southern end, and you've got sort of things like... Uh, Luxor, Mandalay Bay, down that end. And then it goes all the way up mm. to like the stratosphere and mm. the Trump Tower and stuff on the other end. So, And do people, do people actually walk it? I know you did to buy some shoes, but is it, <laughs> <laughs> is it normal for people to walk it? You know, is I don't it, think is so. Is it an activity? Okay. I don't think so. I think, you, I think uh, people go from casino 
from casino to casino, aircon to aircon, and kind of work your way along largely indoors. Right. Uh, but we did it outside with people flicking signs at us and asking us to you know come along to their cocktail bars or their casinos or come in here, <laughs> come in there. It was exhausting. But hey, true love. I got through it. There you go. Did it, stuck by her. So didn't get a Shout pair out of shoes. To Caroline. No, that was it was twenty thirteen. Uh, so we were then married. Shout out to Caroline who listens to this podcast. Hi Caroline. Yeah. Still still haven't remember haven't forgotten the shoe story ten years on. So <laughs> Uh, now, guys, we've, as we've alluded to, and as you mentioned in this video, uh, the construction project of turning Las Vegas into an F1 track is not straightforward. The announcement was made in March 2022, and the team had just 20 months to get the show on the road, if you pardon the pun. To house the paddock, media center, and everything else you need for the race, the Las Vegas Grand Prix took the unusual step of buying a 39-acre site a block east of the Strip, to build their kind of permanent foothold in the city. Now, true to Las Vegas style, this is going to be the largest paddock on the entire F1 circuit. It's over 300 meters long, 30 meters wide, and it's topped off with this enormous illuminated F1 logo on its roof shining up to the sky, which uh, is classic Las Vegas, which you can see in the video is pretty, pretty cool looking. Uh, ground floor is going to have 13 garages, which is going to serve as the base for each of the team's and there's going to be uh, two floors and a rooftop area for hospitality above that. Construction began uh, in November 2022, so a year ago now, and the team had just 11 months to complete the build before a handover target of October 2023. Uh, now, to avoid delays around the long lead times of elements like escalators, lifts, cladding, those crucial systems were actually purchased before the design of the building was complete. So they went out and bought the lifts, bought the escalators, bought some of the cladding systems, early because they knew they had such a tight turnaround um, and as steel beams were taking too long so ordering manufacturing and getting steel beams delivered to site would have taken too long uh, the structure instead relies on uh, poured in situ concrete and rebar which is a pretty, pretty clever twist um, and then to speed up the construction even further they split this massive building into two 150 meter long buildings and two crews began constructing at either end of the site and worked towards a joint point in the middle. Um, at its peak, construction lasted 20 hours a day with 500 people working across two shifts. They really went for it here. Um, Vegas never sleeps, though. There's always there's always stuff going on, so it's not, not that surprising that people were working around the clock. Um, uh, once the building was finished, and then once the building was finished, uh, the race team came along, added in their own specialist equipment, but another interesting fact, because most F1 tools are made to run on European standard power, they had to fit electrical transformers into the garages. Just the construction project alone, just for the the paddock, is impressive, right? It's Yeah, it's amazing. You know, the fact that they they had such a tight turnaround, but obviously they weren't, you know, they're not going to compromise on building something absolutely incredible. So... You know, you have to build something that's huge, super impressive, incredibly technical, and super quickly. You know, I it, I thought it was it's it's quite genius. You know, ordering all of the parts first and then kind of designing around them. You know, having these two teams work from either end in. You know, no steel, concrete, rebar. It's yeah, it's it's really phenomenal. Yeah, it's, I think it speaks to what the construction industry can pull off when, when it's got a tight deadline and it knows it's got a load of angry sports fans watching uh, in, in 11 months time and they know they've got to hit the you know they've got to hit the nail on the head 
but also you know what you know, when they put their mind to it what can be achieved and i think yeah yeah obviously this, sadly this wasn't a hospital or affordable housing it was an f1 paddock but um, there we go <laughs> if we could take a leaf out of this book and apply it to things like infrastructure uh, or other things like that that would be appreciated i think get the f1 team building some railways there you go you'd be london to manchester in no time <laughs> um, I was talking about this thing where they they worked on either end of the building and um, worked towards a joint point in the middle. It, it did strike me maybe we should have started building this railway, the HS2 railway in the UK in Manchester and headed south mm. rather than started in Old O'Common and headed north. But anyway, I think I think a few people have picked up on that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Once there we go. Once again, I'm back on an HS2 rant. I don't know how it <laughs> happens. Everything leads back to Fred having a rant about HS2. So. <laughs> it's, you know, it's it's almost like it, it, the whole thing was a complete shambles, you know. But there we go. I hope you're not suggesting that the government's a shambles, Ian. How dare you? No, they no, don't no. Do in this oh, podcast. No, I'm you know, they're all very um, intelligent, capable people. And they know, <laughs> they know exactly what they're doing. <laughs> back to Las Vegas. Uh, once Las the paddock was built... Yeah hastily back over to Las Vegas. Once the paddock was built, uh, they then had to resurface some of the roads in Las Vegas. Now, if you've been around Las Vegas, you'll know that some of the roads are a little bit patchy. So ahead of the race, 80 million US dollars was spent resurfacing uh, many of the roads around the area to bring them up to F1 standard. That meant stripping up to 25 centimetres of the existing road off and adding four new layers to create a surface which is flat to within a tolerance of three metres within sorry three millimeters within every four meters <laughs> tolerance of three three millimeters within every four meters that was if you're getting it three meters within every four meters that's a bad deal tell you like that's, not, that's no good yeah it'd be yeah, okay lots. for racing tractors but not formula one cars yeah there's there's builders that can do that for you they go oh yeah i'll do it for you mate no worries <laughs> i think it's called crazy baby, cockney, isn't it? <laughs> they're not all cockney i should say uh dodgy girls <laughs> come in all shapes and forms uh, I was just <laughs> throwing an accent to make a point. Uh, now, wh- while that might be enough to satisfy F1, uh, you'll know that in Central Las Vegas, F1 is not the only show in town, and there are some very big neighbours that the Grand Prix has to keep happy. So unlike other street circuits, where the roads used for the track can be closed off for days and resurfaced uh, all nights or you know over sort of closed periods, think Monaco, think many of the other street circuits that have been done on the, on the Grand Prix. Las Vegas is a bit different. So uh, it's only allowed to close roads for seven hours at a time. Uh, so they had to kind of have these very strict working hours. And I know you talked to a chap in the video, Ian, about this, but that really did put constraints on how the resurfacing works took place. They also then put a series of uh, bridges up around the city, temporary bridges, to uh, allow traffic to continue while those works were happening. So it just yeah resurfacing Las Vegas, a city that's always busy, always buzzing, mm. where you've got massive casinos trying to make money all the time. They probably don't want you doing the resurfacing works. Not well, easy. Yeah, it's it's a big deal. I don't know. <clears throat> there's a there's a famous um, documentary called Casino with uh, with Robert De Niro. I don't know if you watched it, but um, they, I mean, you know, these guys they don't seem like you should be messing with them. Let's put it that way. You know, these casinos. Um, so when they, when they were resurfacing the road and bringing everything up to spec, they had to, they had to be so conscious of where they were and what they were doing that 
even around the entrances to the hotels when they were when they were resurfacing they had to take into account in their in their timetables they had to take into account the shift changeovers in the hotels so staff like you know leaving coming out of the hotel you know a few times a day they all need to get out of a certain entrance or exit uh, and so the resurfacing works couldn't obstruct that you know so like right down to sort of hour by hour stuff all this is timetabled um to kind of keep everybody happy but I, I i think the most amazing thing about this is just how just how technical the road has to be and so in the video you'll see an interview with uh, dr Carsten tilker um who has a very cool job of designing formula 1 racetracks uh, and he was saying so they have their own uh they have their own blend, their own pr- proprietary blend of asphalt for the roads, which they invented themselves. So it has all of these different layers, and they, they all do different stuff. So the bottom layer provides stability and all the rest of it. And then the top layer has to be, like you say, Fred, incredibly smooth, but also have enough grip so that the cars, you know, they can overtake safely, they can go around corners at high speeds, yeah, I don't know how they do it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. There's actually, uh, as made me think of two tarmac slash road surface related anecdotes that I have. Um, oh, great. Which at this point, this at is this the point, listeners. <laughs> at this point, <laughs> listeners are going to be going. You know, well, I'm going to go listen to another podcast now. So I'm going to go and see what else. I'm going to go and see what else is on Spotify. But guys, I promise you, this is not dull. They're lost. Um, They're lost. The first one. I, I live in. Uh, I'm not going to reveal where I live on a podcast because there are some crazy people out there. But I live in the Surrey Hills area of outstanding natural beauty, uh, just south of London in the UK. Uh, and it was where the Olympic uh, road race, the Olympic cycle road race, took place uh, back in 2012. Mm. So they would they, the road race kicked oh, off in the mouth nice. of London. Yeah, they then cycled out through southwest London, out through the Surrey Hills. They had loads of laps around these sort of zigzags, up the massive uh, box box hill and stuff near me, uh, and then went back into London again and finished the race. But we we had like rubbish, wrecked, ruined country lanes for decades. Like it was just you know, it was mm-hmm. tractors, sheep, potholes. I, I know the kind. Yeah, and then. About two weeks before the Olympics, they put down what I can only describe as the M1 going through these countries. <laughs> like the most incredible, beautiful Oof. surface with London 2012 logos and everything. It was absolutely incredible. They left it down for years. No. And the first few years, it was quite nice. Then obviously, 10 years on, 12 years on, it's not been Time takes maintained. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, it's designed for bikes. Yeah. That's your issue. <laughs> I want the Olympics back. Bring the Olympics back. Do the road yeah, race yeah. back down here so we can get a new road surface again. Worth it uh, the other that. one is that listeners to this podcast will remember that uh, Aaron Wood and I filmed on the Gatwick Airport runway. We filmed the Gatwick Airport runway resurfacing. Uh, and while you, you think did. that would be dull, we spent the night with these guys resurfacing the runway. And it's incredible. Like the the mm. work that goes into these different layers, the grip, the uh the, the quality they look for across this enormous you know nearly three kilometers mm. long runway is is incredible um but they were ripping up the old runway and sort of you know throwing it in skips and stuff and i said oh can i can i take a piece of tarmac here can i take this piece of tarmac home and I said oh yeah no worries it's about the sort of size of t- two of my hands i'm very excited because i brought it home put it in my office and i've got a piece of the gatwick airport runway hey, in my office how about that but my that's wife cool. again 
dear Caroline, was like, because <laughs> I was going to put it in the lounge. What's that rubbish for? Get out she of was here. like, what the hell is that? I'm like, it's a piece of Gatwick Ever Runway. She was like, why is it here? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't care about it at so all. When... Now, I've, now I've concluded those two anecdotes. I'm not sure they were worth saying on the podcast. But, no, um, that, was, that was worth it. I mean, was it getting a piece of getting a piece of Gatwick run, runway? I mean, that's up there with you know people collect pieces of the Berlin Wall and stuff. It's up there with that, I would say. Because every For an infrastructure lover, yeah, 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 exactly. I've got a piece of Gatwick Airport runway, and you don't. So yeah. there you, know, you go. Yeah, my wife doesn't yeah. see it that way. She just hates that it's in our house, <laughs> so it's been banished. <laughs> it's been banished to our office. <laughs> hey, uh, anyway, an, guys, it's an heirloom. It's an heirloom for your kids. Air. Loom, love it. Heirloom, there we go. Yeah, that was intentional. Yeah, airport heirloom. (laughs) Anyway, guys, let us know what you think about this video. As I said, it came out on the B1M yesterday, all about how Las Vegas is being converted into an F1 track. Kind of building on the past success of our Monaco video we did a few years back, a few years back about how Monaco becomes an F1 track. So let us know what you think. Let us know if you're in Las Vegas, if you're at the Grand Prix this weekend. Send us your messages, podcast at b1m.com. We'd love to know what it's like and what that road surface looks like. That's the most important thing. How oh, yeah. how nice is the road finish? Ignore the race, ignore the champagne. If you're on if you're in Las Vegas this weekend, go for a drive. See how it is. Don't speed, but go no. for a drive. You could you could, it's gonna be interesting to see cars actually going fast in Vegas because it's always so congested and so slow. You couldn't speed if you yeah. wanted to. Yeah, so. there's going to be a lot of envy, isn't there? Yeah, it's going to be good to see. As I said, guys, get your comments coming in. Podcast at the B1M.com. So today's episode is sponsored by Bluebeam. Trusted by over 2.5 million professionals in over 160 countries, Bluebeam develops innovative technology solutions that set the standard for AECO project efficiency and digital collaboration. Bluebeam's desktop, mobile, and cloud-based solutions are specifically designed to improve communication and simplify processes across the entire project life cycle, from your F1 paddock right through to your resurfacing. Now, the key to Bluebeam's success is a customer-focused approach to product development. Bluebeam works with the industry to create solutions for the industry. They are headquartered in Pasadena, California, a place of California which I love. Very nice, very sunny, very idyllic. Uh, They now have additional offices throughout the US, UK, Germany, Sweden, and Australia. And Bluebeam is a proud member of the Nemeshek Group. You can discover what Bluebeam can do for you and your business and your F1 track or your local road resurfacing by starting your free 30-day free trial today over at bluebeam.com. That is a free 30-day trial over at bluebeam.com now what they've left out of this ad read is that uh when it says the key to bluebeam's success is a customer focused approach it's also getting themselves mentioned on the world's best construction podcast regularly i would say and the number of people Mm. we send over to their 30-day free trial don't miss Mm. out guys you want to get involved on that 30-day bluebeam free trial that's that's a generous trial right mate what an offer 30 days yeah, I mean, just think what you can do in thirty days. Construction-wise, you could build half an F one paddock in that time. <laughs> you you know? could. You, you could, could resurface you could. a quarter of the Las Vegas Strip. Yeah, you could think about building a high-speed rail line between two cities that are actually quite mm, close together in the UK. I think, I think that's pushing it a bit. To be fair, yeah, I think that's pushing it. 
Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> thirty day free trial, guys. You could almost you could actually resurface an F one track uh, on the free trial of Blue. You don't have to buy it. You could just download a free trial, use it while you resurface your F one track, and then just like you know, say you don't want to don't want to fancy it any longer after that. But <laughs> yeah. and you know, then you, you've still got an F one track at the end of it. Yeah, it's a win-win, guys. It is a win-win. Win-win. Right, discover what Bloomin can do for you and your business and your F1 track. Start that free 30-day free trial today over at bluebeam.com. That is a free 30-day trial at bluebeam.com. Also in the news this week, guys, we have just announced the winner of Construction Story of the Year 2023. Now, this was a fantastic awards program this year we opened entries in july we saw some fantastic entries come in from right across the industry uh, we had the very tough job of getting down to a well a long list with a long list of 12 and then a short list of three we got down to those uh that, that long list and short list with our fantastic expert judging panel um bringing together a range of experts from across the industry it was really really good to have such a diverse and balanced judging panel this year uh, we then announced our three finalists uh, back in October. So that was the Montsigny Base Tunnel, this huge tunnel being dug uh, through the Alps between Lyon and Turin in Europe. Uh, the US Capital Repainting Works, which is where um, there's a huge restoration project going on between, well, led by Scaffold Resource, but also using uh, robotics and automation brought to the table by Kawazu, which is an incredible story about how the seat of US democracy and the seat of one of the world's biggest superpowers is being uh, enabled and maintained by some incredibly innovative uh, and hardworking construction teams. And also the Northwest Outfall project, which was basically a sewer upgrade in Arizona, but a really, really well written uh, and innovative entry that talked about, you know, the work that had gone on to make that project possible, and the impact it could have had if it hadn't worked and come off. So, we had three really good uh, final entries. We did uh, we well, we created short videos on each of them to try and lift up their stories and showcase them across the BM network. We uh, got some great feedback and reaction and insight from our audience, and then we brought that together. We had a final judging round uh, a couple of weeks ago where we picked a winner. So we took we looked at the entry criteria, we looked at all the entries, we looked at your reaction, your feedback, guys from right across our audience. And we arrived at the winner of Construction Story of the Year 2023, which has just been announced today, the day this podcast comes out. And I'm very pleased to announce that it went to the Montigny Base Tunnel being built between Lyon and Turin in Europe. Hey, awesome. Well done, guys. Well done. Yeah. Huge. What a story. It, it's an incredible story. Like to, Just to sit there and go, oh, yeah, you know what? We're going to improve rail connectivity and like freight and rail connections for this entire continent, boosting economic growth across this entire continent by building a railway through a mountain, uh, more yeah. than 57 kilometers through the base yeah. of a mountain. It's insane. Yeah. Let's build a railway. Oh, there's a mountain in the way. Yeah, so. Yeah. You know, it's like that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it was incredible. Like, honestly, and there's so many factors about this that make it construction story of the year for me. The the innovation, the impact, the ability for it to inspire future engineers and future generations of engineers, the collaboration going on, not just between uh, the supply chain, but between two different countries and the wider European Union working to build this tunnel. There are just so many factors of it. It's mm -hmm. it's awesome. It's an awesome project. 
there is an announcement video that's just come out today across the B1M social media channels and our building brief channel. So do go and watch that because we've got uh, some really, you know, some further insight on the projects, which is great. But yeah, it's been a fantastic uh, awards program this year. I've really enjoyed the way it's lifted up so many great stories happening across construction and helped share them with a wider audience. And for this story in particular to be construction story of the year is awesome and we can't wait to celebrate it further and fully deserve it yeah help it inspire future generations of engineers which is the whole idea showing the world how great this industry really is you know what i love most about tunneling stories as well and you know we we cover all sorts of mega projects at b1m but it's only really tunneling stories where you have a project that combines really incredible um super sophisticated fine-tuned engineering you know over 57 kilometers you need to be sort of still like you know more or less millimeter perfect by the end of it you know that sort of like really sophisticated precision combined just with sheer brute force of smashing out the middle of a mountain you know yeah like sticking explosives blowing stuff up it's you know where else do you have that 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 match that balance between precision and brute force is amazing yeah and i think what's really impressive about this is it's not just the actual construction project which is which is amazing but the impact it's going to have afterwards you know this is talking about taking a million vehicles a million trucks off the road every year it's talking about economic boost between two countries and an economic boost mm. for the wider european union and european continent like yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible. It's one of those projects that will, I think, for decades, if not centuries, make a huge difference to millions and millions of people. So, yeah, it's awesome. And it would be the kind of thing that if it works well, then everybody will just forget about it. Nobody yeah. will be able to remember a time that it wasn't there. No, people just take for granted that those really impactful, useful infrastructure projects because they can't imagine their lives without them. There you go. Yeah. Also, a big thank you to the Nemenshek Group guys for sponsoring Construction Story of the Year this year and for helping us bring such a fantastic awards program to fruition. Big shout out to those guys. Big thank you to Matt Wheelis as well, who was the representative of the Nemenshek Group on our judging panel and who's also in the announcement video with me. It's been great to have Matt's insight. So, and you might remember Matt Wheelis is actually a friend of the podcast as well. He's an earlier guest. So, hey, there you go. Yeah, Maybe one yeah. day he could end up co hosting. <laughs> actually i'll, I'll make sure he doesn't <laughs> no, no one's replacing you mate you're my favorite now no, you, 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 no, st- you stood up and supported me when the other two just checked out so cheers fred <laughs> I'm, I'm here uh, also in the news we are swinging over to indonesia where one of the world's thinnest hotels has opened measuring just 2.8 meters across so this rises from what was previously a well was currently still a small but uh previously disregarded site because no one thought you could build anything on this space it was too small too tiny no one thought much of it uh you've now got a seven bedroom uh hotel called the pito rooms this is in central java uh it's an incredible structure it has a central staircase that rises up through the middle of it and connects each of the hotel rooms and then there's a small restaurant slash bar thing at the top um checking in guests can look forward to a double bed toilet shower uh, all carefully nestled within the width of the building. Looking at the pictures, it looks like you lay down in bed and your feet are on one side and your head's on the other side, especially someone like you, Ian, because you're quite tall. Um, yeah, that's going to be that's going to be tight. But yeah, this is incredible, right? I love this. I like it. I I really I think it looks 
beautiful. I, the color palette that they have, it's I think it's great. It reminds me of um, if you've ever, ever been to Amsterdam in the old town of Amsterdam. There's lots of incredibly thin but very 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 tall houses um, dotted around the canals. That's that's kind of what this reminds me of. Yeah, yeah, I think absolutely. Absolutely, it's a it's a beautiful building. I want to stay here. I just want, just want yeah. like the intrigue of spending a night. I imagine there's not a lot of privacy because I imagine that people can hear almost Ooh. every word that's said between mm. two rooms. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure about that actually. Yeah, maybe. And you'll know, yeah, who's there and not there. What's the what's the thinnest hotel you've ever stayed in, Fred? Oh, I've stayed in some very very small rooms very in thin, New York before. Very thin hotels. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can yeah. imagine that. Tiny, tiny little, like, pod places. Lovely. Pleased to say I stay in slightly nicer hotels now, but, um, yeah, that was... <laughs> that was <laughs> How about you, Ian? What's the thinnest hotel you've ever stayed in? Oh, now you're asking. Um, I, did, I went to Tokyo once. I stayed in a very, very thin hotel in Tokyo. Um, <laughs> I think a little bit like New York, everything is very kind of small, it was packed in in Tokyo. Um, it was a it was a robot hotel as well. They had they had robots on the front desk that checked you in. Wow! I have, how yeah. personal? Uh, they were dressed up as dinosaurs as well. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, a few comments on this one. Uh, someone's saying it's fatophobic architecture because uh, they think fat people can go to stay there. <laughs> I have to say, unless you're Sorry, more than two point, <laughs> unless you're more than two point eight meters wide, I think you're going to be fine. Um, yeah. Someone else saying, would this as well? Yeah, absolutely. Would this even recover development costs? Which I think is quite an interesting question because mm. uh, there aren't that many rooms. Seven rooms and quite a small site. Um, Does it have a lift? No. Oh, I'm just wondering if you have a heavy bag. I, I started out really liking this, but now I'm not too sure how I feel about it. Practicalities, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, I like to um, pick up cats by the tail and swim them round, and I won't be able to do that here. Can't, can't swim a cat in these rooms. <laughs> no chance. Not even not even a kitten. <laughs> no. Oh, hang on. I think there is a lift. So I'm just looking at the uh, I'm looking at the oh, section, good. which is very narrow, as you'd imagine. But I think there is actually a lift in this building. So. Yeah, uh, well, yeah, it, it better be. It sounds like things are nice and calm in Peckham this morning. Yeah, sorry, I don't don't know. No, it could nice. be an emergency. I think it's a motorcade. Actually, we get a lot of motorcades passing by here, going um, through with the doors of... locked as fast as they can. Yeah, <laughs> you hit Peckham, they floor it. You know, here they come again. Get through, get through. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, there you go. Now, guys, swinging over closer to home, closer to uh, London, United Kingdom, we are heading over to Wimbledon, where a new show court has just been approved. Now, this is an interesting story, right? This is an 8,000-seat mm. new show court at Wimbledon. It's the first big court they've built since uh, the refurbishing of Centre Court and the building of Number One Court a long time ago now. And this has been approved despite more than 2,000 objections. Um, so wow, Merton Council... 2,000? 2000 that is two and then three zeros yeah merton council which oversees planning applications in this borough has given the scheme formal approval at a planning committee meeting uh and i I don't know i don't know what to say about Mm. this there's the stadium itself is quite nice it's it's very 
it's very tree covered. There's lots of greenery on it. It looks like mm. it's uh, part timber constructed. It's being built in Wimbledon Park, which is this area of parkland next to the. I'm going to get this wrong, but the the Lawn Tennis Association's main, you know, Wimbledon Stadium site, Championship site. What they've done is they bought part of Wimbledon Park, which, as I said, is this Grade Two listed registered park and garden that was landscaped by Capability Brown in the 18th century. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but hey, the plants are nice. Uh, <laughs> Capability the- Brown. Here's a fact attack. He invented more or less the English country garden. The Serpentine, you if you've ever been to London and seen the Serpentine, that was all his idea. There you go, yeah. So anyway, he's designed this area of Wimbledon Park. Wimbledon have bought this area of the park, uh, and everyone's a bit concerned about what they're building on it. So there is this new 8,000-seat show call, as I said. There's also going to be 38 uh, temporary tennis courts that have been carefully positioned within the landscape. So they're going to be there during the tournament, but they're not going to be there all year round and what Wimbledon are trying to do this is the the Lawn Tennis Association is invest in the park restore the park uh, plant more than a thousand new trees um, and open up this nine hectare area to the public so there is a positive story here but there's also quite a lot of development happening and there is this permanent new stadium being constructed which is where some of the opposition I believe comes from well so there's there's another twist to this as well because i was i was a bit puzzled by this one i had a look into it so you have wimbledon park the the wimbledon tennis courts are like you say just on the edge of wimbledon park um but then the land that they've bought to build this on is about half of wimbledon park but it's it was a former golf course so this wasn't, you know, kind of really nice, beautiful, rolling landscapes ground. You know, it, it was a golf course, so it was open only to private members. Yeah, I don't know where I stand on this one. I, I quite like it. And there's lots of comments about this. People saying that the way the new stadium has been designed in such a way to kind of fit with the park, you know, with a lot of timber beams, there's uh, greenery across it, at least in the renders. Mm. I think they've done a pretty good job there's some there's a guy here um andy cook in the comments saying that it's a beautiful looking new venue it's always going to be a challenge expanding a venue like this with its historic constraints uh and then he said he'd like to know if the local infrastructure is going to be upgraded to cope with the extra people visiting wimbledon for the championships we don't know Mm, you're asking probably not no doubt it no (laughs) knowing us we we don't have we don't have a great record with that kind of stuff (laughs) (laughs) you want a railway (laughs) no chance Um, i do if you fancy fred i've actually put together a little wimbledon quiz for you to see how you can do on this what right now A, a little a little quick quick wimbledon quiz are you up for it oh my god hang on is it tennis related uh we yeah wimbledon tennis yeah are you good at tennis no well, you'll Go do on then. very bad. You'll do Serve very it up. <laughs> hey. So, if you're listening at home, you can play along as well. Um, I want you to name, you've already had a stab at it, which makes me think you won't do too well on this. I want you to give the full name of the club which hosts Wimbledon. Oh, goodness me. It's a tough one. Is it the, is it the All England Lawn Tennis Club? Oh, you're so close. So close. It's the All England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. Great. They do croquet there as well, but that's not quite as big, apparently. <laughs> um, 
So I'll give you, you can have half a point for that. That was, oh, that was pretty what good. What is it with me getting screwed with quizzes on this podcast? Like, <laughs> I didn't know this one was coming. Thanks, um, Frank. I think the, I'll tell you what, for this one, I'll take the decade because the year, this is a bit tough. What was the, <laughs> in what decade was the first Wimbledon championships held? Oh, was it the 1910s? It was, uh, I'll give you a clue. It was the 19th century. Oh, was it the 1890s? It was the 1870s. Oh, 1870s. It's been going a while, isn't it? Yeah, a long time. The uh, fun fact, the first ever final on that first championship was delayed for three days because of rain. Oh. So there you go. Start as you mean to continue. Classic um, Wimbledon. And last, last question. You might get this one. Last question. I want to know who has won the most Wimbledon singles championships, and men and women, who has won the most Wimbledon singles oh, championships? Lord. Is it actually joint between Federer and Djokovic? It's not a joint. There it's is not a, a joint. Clear winner. So, okay. It's not Serena Williams. It's it's Roger Federer. That is a good guess, but wrong. It's not right. <laughs> Roger Federer, he comes in second, so he's won it eight time. In first place, a bit of a curveball, this, Martina Navratilova. Oh, she's, there you go. She's won it nine times. Roger Federer's won it eight. Oh, my apologies, Martin. I didn't know that. So that's fifteen love for no, I don't know. I don't know how you score tennis scores. Well done. Have well done for playing along. <laughs> well done. You scored well nothing. Done. Half a point. <laughs> <laughs> Half a point. <laughs> I'll get you a participation medal. Oh, well thank you, Ian. You've you've continued the tradition of me being uh, absolutely rinsed on on quizzes on this podcast so thanks mate there you go it's happy to happy to oblige it's fine it was going so well i was excited to uh bring you back have you make make you a regular co-host but uh have i, stuff, have I ruined it you stuffed it now yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all over uh now guys we're swinging over to the message box uh which i'm going to read out this week because luke has abandoned the podcast because he's sick just unacceptable unacceptable uh this is coming from colin woodall who sends us quite a few emails uh so good to be reading you out colin uh he is writing from lethbridge alberta he says hi guys love the episode this is last week's episode he's talking about great stuff as always i'm actually from alberta so i maybe can help you guys out a bit edmonton which we last week we talked about the west edmonton mall which is this massive massive mall in, in canada sorry which has the biggest car park in the world he says Edmonton is not even remotely close to Calgary. And then in block caps, he's written, do not equate the two. This oh, is like no. mixing up Liverpool and Manchester United during a soccer brackets football match. Oh, you Edmonton, don't want to do that. No, you don't want to do that, no. Edmonton is actually in the middle of the province, whereas Calgary is more in the south. Calgary is a lot bigger, but Edmonton is the capital of the province. I did know this. I was just kind of giving people like a general ballpark feel of where uh, Edmonton was on the world. It is in the same province as Calgary. A bit north of it. I was going to ask. I I thought this sounded like a Luca mistake. I was was going to let him take the blame for it. No, this has got a front mill's fingerprints (laughs) all over it. Uh, He said, he goes on, this is, we're not even halfway through the scene yet. Calgary's influence, for lack of a better term, ends just south of Red Deer, 
whereas Edmonton's extends only to about Leduc. There you go. I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Of course, Leduc. He says, yeah. I recommend Google Maps for Red Deer and Leduc, wherever that is. Yeah. Also, the West Edmonton Mall, colloquially known as West Ed, doesn't have a zoo, but it did for a while have dolphins, sea lions, and working, albeit small tracts of marines. It also has a full-scale model of Christopher Columbus's ship, the Santa Maria, a regulation-sized ice hockey rink, an amusement park, and a water park. It was also, for a wow. while at least, the largest shopping centre in North America. We are very proud of it. Cheers, lads. Colin Woodhall. <laughs> hey, Edmonton sounds great. It, mm, it's a big mall. <laughs> Lots of parking. It's it. Lots of parking. Um, you could have it. You could stage a Grand Prix there. Yeah. Um, I, why is it so a zoo this might seem a bit of a basic question but why can't a zoo include aquatic animals is it, it should even have a, a ah there we go what is SeaWorld SeaWorld is that's that film with Kevin Cosner <laughs> no it's uh, <laughs> that's Waterworld <laughs> that's Waterworld <laughs> more broad <laughs> it's a lot more broad <laughs> <laughs> sea World sea is World. an aquarium, isn't it? Yeah, is it a zoo? I don't know. No, no. Anyway, the West Edmonton Mall is much more than just Starbucks and home furnishings. There's all sorts down there, guys. Seemingly, a submarine. It did. It said it did for a while. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's anyway, pretty cool. No, no. I'm very sorry, Colin, for getting my um, Canadian landmarks and locations mildly mixed up thanks for your block caps email it was generally unnecessary <laughs> way of correcting me but uh, <laughs> thanks for writing in I apologise for getting Canada wrong we'll get it we'll do better in the future next time next time next time well guys that concludes this episode of the world's best construction podcast we've had a good in-depth discussion about an F1 track about construction story of the year the world's thinnest hotel Wimbledon it's been a bonus Wimbledon quiz I didn't, didn't know it was coming. I, I could have hit you with a quiz, Ian. I didn't I, know it was coming. You know, I'm trying to think of a, a tennis pun, but no, carry on. Yeah. <laughs> hit the net, that one. Uh, anyway, guys, <laughs> <laughs> get your comments coming in. Podcast at the B1M.com. Don't forget, this episode was sponsored by Bluebeam. There is that 30-day free, free 30-day trial over at Bluebeam.com. It's a good trial, isn't it? That's a, that's, yeah. We like that trial. Get involved. Yeah, go sign up. Bluebeam.com. Tell him you came from the world's best construction podcast. Uh, I, I've got no idea who's hosting this with me next week. Let's see. I'm going to continue to carry the uh, immense burden on my strong shoulders. Uh, but uh, stay go. tuned in. Thanks for doing this, Ian. And we'll see you next week. It's strange to do this without the music. Oh, I can sing. I can sing a bit. Yeah, do that. <laughs> 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 <laughs>